Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. The news of this coronavirus pandemic is troubling and tough, and we hope that all of you are sheltering at home and staying out of the fray. As for us, we are going to continue bringing you my interviews with the best in tennis and beyond. We have a great show for you today. He grew up right outside of Montreal, Canada, and honed his skills as a junior at the legendary Saddlebrook Resort in Wesley Chapel, Florida. As a pro, he rose to four in the world, reached the finals of the 1997 U.S. Open, and posted wins over Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Gustavo Quirton, and Murat Safin, to name a few. He is now a broadcaster for Amazon Prime Video's tennis coverage in the United Kingdom. Greg Ruzetsky is going to tell us what it was like to switch allegiances from Canada to England. He's going to explain the real story behind his famous match against Pete Sampras at the 2002 U.S. Open. And he's going to describe the uncanny similarities he shares with Tim Henman. We sat down with Greg and Indian Wells shortly before the BNP Paribas Open was cancelled. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. You ready for this, I'm my ready. brother? I'm always it's ready. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's you been know, a while. I was happy I ran into you uh, on the grass at the U.S. Open that day. Yeah. We were just about to interview Eva Maioli. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, It's been pretty busy, you know, just working some tennis, doing the things you got to do. You know how it goes. So, first of all, we are sitting uh, under the trees, on the grass, at the BNP Paribas Indian Wells Tennis Garden. Is that what, that's what this is? That's what this is. I mean, this site now is spectacular. I remember in the old days when we used to play at the Grand Hyatt Champions, which was a great event. And then Charlie Pastorell bought this place where he did it, and Larry... Uh, Allison from Oracle has made this place sensational. Gentlemen, you hear former world number four, Englishman via Canada, had an unbelievable career, um, and an old-time friend of mine, my man Greg Ruzetsky, in town for Amazon Prime? Yeah, it's called Prime Video and Prime Video Sport right now, so they have all the rights. Sorry, English... TV. UK. UK. So basically what happens is we have UK and Ireland. So they have the exclusive rights for the WTA and the ATP Tour as well as the US Open. So it's all about streaming these days. And and um, how are you, man? I'm really well, thank you. Really, really good. Let's get right into this. We do a five-set format. Our first set is our off-the-court report. So do you, you live in London? Yeah, I've been in London now for about uh, 28, 29 years now. So most of, most of my life there, I got two kids i'm married Yo, um, you know so, so, so life life's changed now it's much more relaxed than it was when it was on tour time flies when you are a tennis <laughs> illuminary well, i don't know if i'd say i'm an illuminary but you know time does go quickly and i'm very fortunate i'm still involved in the in the game playing on the champions tour playing exhibition events you know coming to great events like this so it, it's kind of a sport for life so you're you're broadcasting, yep. Uh, and that Amazon just switched over. Were you were you BBC or were you Sky? I was Sky and Eurosport, but Amazon started in the in tennis in 2018. So I was part of the original team that started up with it, and it's a 
it's all exciting because they always try to do new things and add new dimensions to the sport. So it's, it's a great company to work for. And now we don't, obviously in the United States, we, I don't see the Amazon feeds that you guys are doing. Um, how many matches are you doing, say, at an event like this? Are they grind you out? You know, we see Alex Karecha at Eurosport. He's like, morning tonight. Are you morning tonight? Yeah, we're morning tonight. We do we do every match. And you can watch every match. What the great thing about streaming is you can watch the center court. You can watch court nine. You can watch court ten. They've got every single match. And then you get the replays in 15 minutes. So they basically have more tennis than anybody. So for the tennis fan, I think it's the ideal medium. And um, who do you broadcast with? Who's your partner? Well, the uh, right now, Catherine Whitaker leads the desk. We have Daniela Hanchikova in the studio with me. Martina's joining. The Martina Navratilova is also joining us as well. Daniela Hantukova, um, you know, obviously the Czech great player. Um, Catherine Whitaker uh, has the tennis podcast as well, which is the, the, she, David Law, and Matt Roberts do a terrific job. Um, friends of the show, or at least I hope they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Catherine's outstanding. I mean, you might, do you enjoy working with her? Yeah, I enjoy working yeah, with her. Yeah, she's cool. Plus, also, we have Marcus Buckland, who's on the team. He used to work for Sky. You know, we have so many names and faces coming into the team, and, you know, they're just getting stronger and stronger with all the pundits and the people who are presenting. And there's no channel. Like, you don't go to Channel 7 or 8. You just got to go on the Internet. Well, That's it, Amazon what Prime. What happens is if you have a smart TV, you basically go yeah. onto the Prime Video or you get a fire stick and plug it in. So, I mean, that's that's the future. If you think about it, if you get prime delivery, you get all the tennis for free. You can't beat that. Now, listen, I did when I was doing my research to get ready for this, I read that you were writing some articles for all those all those British papers, The Sun, The Mirror, The Daily Telegraph. Now, let me tell the truth. Were you really writing or are you just phoning it in and someone else was writing it? You know, what happens is you have somebody who writes it with you. Then after that, you read it to make sure everything is put down correctly and you change it to what your liking is. Some of the articles I'll do myself and others I'll have someone who ghosts it with me. What kind of stuff do you write about, Greg? Well, I write about the game or what's happening. You know, obviously there was the big Serena gate when Osaka won the title, so we talked about that situation. And of course. Writing the views of those situations with the public want to know about. So it's usually during the Wimbledon period or during the majors or when there's some big story in tennis happening. And um, I also read, I learned that you have been on some uh, game shows, some reality shows. Is that true? <laughs> uh, I did a few reality shows. I did a dancing on ice show, which is basically learning how to uh, figure skate, which was challenging. I got, I got out of 10 out of 12 weeks. So it wasn't too bad. Um, then I've done a little bit of acting in an episode of Miss Marple where the Danish guy who was directing didn't know I played tennis. And he said, geez, you play pretty good tennis there when I was playing with Greg Wise, who's the husband uh, of Emma Thompson. Hang on a second. So there was a scene where yeah. you had to play tennis yeah, and the well, guy who didn't know that you were a, a you would no, final the U.S. Open? And he had no idea because it was an old old grass court club with wooden rackets. It's going back if you've ever seen Miss Marple. It's quite an old series. It's actually interesting, the bozos that get well, hired not, to it's, do something. It's, it's not even that because I think it was Greg Wise who was also helping produce it. So he kind of invited me in and I just I just laugh at it. I wouldn't even say it's, it's bozos or anything like that. It's it's a little comical. It depends how serious you take yourself. Well, my man, you don't have to say it. I'm saying it. <laughs> if the guy didn't know you were a pro tennis player, then yeah, but I was I was playing with wooden racket, old school. <laughs> um, 
And and uh, d- d- I mean, d- what's the story? Do you make a fortune? Do you still have a ton of money from <laughs> when you were uh, a playing? Well, I, I, Are I, you, I, do you roll around in like limousines everywhere you no, go? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not a flash person. I, 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 You're not flashy. No, that's that's not me. I, I'm lucky that I. I live in London, I have a few properties around, and I, I have a few things outside of tennis I'm doing as well. So I think you've got to keep yourself busy. The, the hardest thing for anybody when they're retiring is finding something to do. I'm fortunate I've gotten into media, I've gotten into a few other projects outside of tennis, and, and that, that's kept me busy. And you just got to be smart with your money and have good people around you. Let's move into our second set. This is our On the Court report. Yeah. Let's talk about English tennis for a minute, um, Dan. We got, we, we got to start calling it British tennis because you're going to you're going to insult all the Scots and the Welsh. And oh right, 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 right. right. Oh yeah, okay. Call it Apo- English. Apologies to the <laughs> apologies to the to the uh, empire. Um, There's no more empire. <laughs> Dan Evans. Yes. Yeah, he's had a great year. I mean, I think you know he had the whole situation we had to go through from the drug ban we all know about, and then Dave Felgate really brought his game up to scratch and got him playing some great tennis. The old coach of Tim Henman. Then he parted company with him. For our for our listeners, David Felgate was, Greg just said, it was the longtime coach of Tim Henman. Um, Donna Vekic as well. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, one of these... One of these tried and true, long-time pro elite player coaches on the circuit. Well, exactly. He, he, he knows. He knows. He knows what he's doing. So, and, so he took Dan. He well, he worked well, him back in. Well, he worked him back in from the drugs ban and brought him all the way back up into the top fifty in the world. They parted company, and now he's with Mark Hilton, who's uh, managed to this year even take him further and keep on improving because he's had five top twenty wins this year. He's got to a career high of 28. He's playing here at 29 in the world. You know, wins like Rublev, Hatchinoff, Fonini. Um, then after that, Dimino as well. And Goffin, let's not forget as well, he beat. For our listeners, you know, I tell you, Dan Evans also has one of the most beautiful backhands on tour. Well, he's a complete player. You know, he models his game and looks at the data of Roger Federer having spoken to his team. And so he looks at what he's doing, his court positioning, and tries to put some of those aspects into his game. And he's an all-court player with a one-handed back and a slice, and that's a rarity, and a guy who's willing to come forward. So I think if you play a little old-school tennis, as I like to say, it still works in this modern era. Do you have a fluid relationship with him? What kind of guy is he? Yeah, he's a nice guy. I just interviewed him. That's why I was a little late for your, your podcast today, because I had to sit there and uh, interview him. What do you have to say for himself? Come on, give us something good. Well, no, he's just, there's all the talk about a new sponsorship deal coming up in the clothing line. Um, You know, he's talking about his game, getting down here, spent a little bit of time at Larry Stefanke's place here um, in San Diego, because there's another British guy, Milton, he used to play with in juniors, who's working out of there as well. I think that he was actually working with Dimitrov down there, for my sources tell me. Is that true? Um, There's rumors about that. I'm not so sure about it, but Dan's... uh, Dan's putting yeah, in the I preparation. Think, I think Dimitrov and Dan were practicing in San Diego at La Val- at, uh, uh, Valencia, uh, La Valencia, something like that. Yeah, I mean, but the other thing is, which is great, is the consistency for Dan, because he's not always been the most consistent player. Three quarters, one semis, and coming in here in a good role. I mean, he's got, he's got, he's he's making money moves. I mean, he's got top 20 potential. Well, he's always had top 20 potential, but you know, he would like to enjoy himself too much off the courts and not put in all the work and the seriousness. And I think sometimes 
when you take a step back and the ban was actually the blessing in disguise for him because it's, it's forced him to realize how lucky he was with his lifestyle. He got banned for cocaine. He must have just gone out and rocked the house one night and that did him in. Um, what, are you, what are you hearing about Andy Murray? Well, Andy Murray, there's rumors he might be back from Miami. Um, he's talked about his hip having a growth where the, uh, the metal plate was put in, so that's been causing him a little bit of problems. He's been back on the practice course last week. Um, and we saw all, a video of him. He, didn't, he looked like he was moving. Yeah, he, he looks like he's moving pretty good, but it's one thing to see a, see a two-minute video. It's another thing to see a match. We all hope he gets back on the court. But, you know, it's so hard. The last two years, the stop, start, stop, start, and then winning in Antwerp was an unbelievable result last year, beating Stan the Man. What's your relationship with him? Yeah, I get on well with Andy, you know? Has he ever said, listen, I, mean, I got to shut this down. My hip well, is just too much. I don't, I don't think he's... I, I think Andy's achieved so much in his career, he can do whatever he likes. And the only person who can make that decision for him is himself. And, you know, whether he wants to stop, that's got to be his choice. Whether he wants to continue, that's got to be his choice. Because he's been our greatest British tennis player in the open era, bar none at the moment, with his accomplishments. Is there anyone on the men's side that we need to, that we haven't talked about? Well, I think the youngster, if we're looking for youngsters for future, it's Jack Draper. Jack Draper. He's, he's the one who, you know, obviously played well in junior Wimbledon. Um, he's one of the highest ranked juniors in the world at his age in the top 300 in the world. He's lefty, as a, I'm always biased to a left-handed player. Um, he's the one to look forward to from a British perspective in the men's game. For Great the name, too, Jack Draper. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you, can't, you can't get a better name than that. Yeah, and, and also he's... <laughs> That's a cool name. It is, and he's working with Ryan Jones, who worked with Kyle Edmund for a while as well, too. So a good coach behind him as well. Ah, that's who I forgot. What's going on with... I mean, I think Edmund, he won New York. Yep. He had a... I mean, there wasn't a lot of high-quality wins in there, but pro tennis is tough, man. A win's a win. A wi uh, winning it, there's... There's a lot of good players out there who don't actually win a tour event in their career. 100%. And, you know, and, so and, it doesn't matter what the standard is. You have to win whatever's in front of you. But for me, he's had a pretty good year. He's 9-4. and four. Franco Devine's been added to the team as well as Colin Beecher. Franco it's, Devine, I believe, is Argentine. Yep, exactly. With he's Del Potro, with Fonini. He's had many world-class players with him. So, you know, last year when he spoke... He split from Freddie Rosengren. You know, there's a little bit of concern. He didn't replace him or add an, a world-class coach. And I've been talking about that, and I'm delighted he's got Franco Devine in his, in his side. And, you know, the results are starting to show. It's interesting how important these coaching relationships are to well, no. the success of the player. Well, it's all about a relationship. You're spending more time with that person than with your family, usually, as a professional tennis player, because you're always on the road. Also that, you've got to feel like you're getting value for money and improving all the time. And, you know, there's so many factors that have to be right. And you look at the average of a coaching relationship on tour, it's probably about a year, year and a half. So the ones that go longer, that are exceptional. And if we talk about coaches making a massive change, we just have to look at this event a year past with what Dominic Team did with uh, Nicholas Massou. That's been uh, revolutionary to his game. He's, he's become a complete player since that partnership. That's a great point. Um, on the women's side, Heather Watson just won a tournament in Mexico, right? She won out. She won yep. Acapulco. Yep. Um, and you just shared a second ago that you're going to practice with her. Well, what can you tell us about Heather Watson? Well, I worked with Heather for a little bit of um, when she lost to Serena up two breaks in the third set at Wimbledon a few years back, and uh, she's a great girl, fantastic athlete. You know, is a great competitor. And she's finally got her mojo back again, winning in Acapulco. And what about how she plays? Like, what would you say about her her, her tennis? Well, I think she, you have to play the style 
that you're going to win with. You know, she's a fantastic mover around the court. I think she counter punches well. She always wants to put more aggression in her game, but she has to find the right balance between the two. And that's the tricky thing. You've got to look at what your strengths and your weaknesses are. You cannot make yourself something you're not. It's like if I was going to say I'm going to make myself a baseliner when I was a pure serve volleyer, I might as well just give up. And this is where the player has to believe it's the right way to play and the right way to win. And I think with Heather, sometimes she wants to play a little bit too big, and that's where she has to get the balance. And when she gets the balance right, that's when her best results happen. What are your sources telling you about Joe Conta? Well, she had a good week this, uh, this past week in Monterey, got to the semifinals. She beat Kleisters in the first round. Kim hasn't had the greatest of comebacks yet, but some tough openers against Muguruza as well as Conta. And then Conta this week starting to get her feel back. She has a good season, and then it's the season after, which is the more challenging one. So coming into Indian Wells, I think it was huge that she played so well Monterey. Um, does she have the game? Does, she, does her is her game still holding up on tour as a as a, as the kind of game that could make some moves in the, in a slam? Oh, last season, I mean, she could have been in the finals of the French Open. She's one match away in a hurricane blustery win. So, uh, yeah. and then she's got semis of Aussie, semis of Wimbledon. I mean, been as she's high as number four in the world. So she's she's class. She's dangerous when she has that confidence and things are flowing. She can beat anybody. Um, she's very streaky. Yeah, she is streaky. But streaky's not a bad thing. Streaky's dangerous. When the streak comes out, it's dangerous. So, I mean, for me, I'm fascinated to see how this week is going to go in Indian Wells because the confidence is coming back. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Um, That'll be a short discussion. <laughs> I don't think so, man. Now, let me, I, you know, I know you were born in Canada. Um, where does your tennis begin? Well, my tennis begins like most people in a public park. My dad was a social player, um, just played in a clay court club in Point Claire. And sometimes you need a little bit of luck. What, what, and that's, that's Ontario? No, that's in, that's in Montreal. It's a suburb just outside of Montreal. So it's in Quebec. And, and, um, Quebec. And I didn't realize you were formerly Quebecois. I wasn't Quebecois. I was English speaking, but meaning I, I grew up in Montreal as a kid. So I speak French, English, and Spanish. I speak three languages. And how did your family get to Montreal? Uh, my parents ended up, my mom's parents came from England and up Montreal. My dad's parents came from the former Ukraine and from Russia across as well. So that's how we ended up down in Canada. So just a family background. But, um, but, no, but not a tennis family. Well, my father always wanted to be a tennis player growing up. But my grandfather said to him, look, you know, this isn't a proper job. You can't do this for a living. Go get a university degree. So he saw I had talent and decided to invest in me. But also it was a little bit of luck because the first club I went to, which I was six or seven years of age, was a park club, which I was telling you about. And the lady, What's the name was, of it? What's the name of it? Um, Cedar Park Tennis Club. Very small club. It only had four, four courts in the summer, and then the winter was an ice hockey rink. Um, and the lady... So it's interesting you didn't play hockey. Well, I, I played, but I wasn't very good. <laughs> That's another story. But what was interesting about the lady who was there, her son was this guy who was this big protege. He was beating Agassiz and Changs and Couriers and all these guys under, under 12s and under 10s. Who is that? Uh, this guy, Jean-Francois Mathieu. Everybody thought he was going to be this superstar kid. Jean-Francois Mathieu. Yeah, and he ne it never came about for him, but his mother was coaching at this park club. And she noticed that I had a talent. And my father was like, well, explain to me why the talent. And then she explained what her son was doing 
in the international game, which was unusual for anybody growing up in Canada to be able to do. So sometimes it's luck, right people, and you need the driver of a parent. But so did you come up in in juniors uh, playing, you know, Orange Bowl and and all those sort of? Yeah, I did. I, I did. So my, my father was in quality control. So he liked to work by numbers and look what the best Americans were doing. So my comparison wasn't really, there weren't role models growing up as a kid in Canada. The role models were what were the Americans doing? And that, that was the thing. So I would play the nationals. I couldn't play the Kalamazoo, but I could play the indoors and some of the outdoors in the U.S. tournaments. So you sort of worked the American program. Well, I did because the fact they had the best players on the planet. You had McEnroe, Connors, Sampras, Courier, Chang. You know, you look at all the guys. Back during that generation, the Americans were the best in the world. If I was living in Europe, then you're looking at France and Spain. But growing up in Canada, that's what that was the marker. And did you stay in Canada training, or did you? Would you go to Florida? Yeah, and I would go to Florida. I used to go down to Saddlebrook. You did with Scotty Brook and Alvaro, who coached Shuzo Matsoka. Alvaro Betancourt. That's right. So you know, it's a good group of guys. I mean, Scotty Brook probably would have been a long term coach, but he couldn't travel week in, week out, and he was he was a good guy in my development. Did you have a special win? Were you piling up wins? Did you have any interesting junior success that you, you kind of were like, oh wait, maybe this could be something special. Maybe I could become well, I think, a pro player. Well, I think when I was nine, I made the decision that's what I wanted to try to achieve, was to become a professional tennis player. I know, but we all when do I, that. Greg. I know, but when I was <laughs> under 12, so I was finished sixth in the Orange Bowl, so I, I did the back draw and made the finals. Um, so I already knew where I was ranked then. 14s, I'd already been to semis of some U.S. nationals, the indoors in Chicago. So I was always on my path. And then my last year of juniors, I, was, I only played a few junior events, and I finished, I think, eight or nine in the world with playing six events. So I'd, I'd always done my building blocks of where I needed to be, but part of my deal was I had to be able to finish my high school and go to university if I wasn't good enough. So you got to explain, so, so when did you turn pro? I turned pro when I was um, 17. My last year of juniors, I turned pro. Um, and what happened was I gave myself a cutoff. By the time I was 21, if I wasn't top 100 in the world, it was back to school and get a proper job. Because trying to accept the finances and the commitment, the parents and the family and the sacrifice everybody makes, you've got to have realistic goals. For me, fortunately enough, I think by the time I was 20, I was already top 50 in the world. So the choice had been made. I'd won my first tour event when I was 19 in Newport, Rhode Island. So I'd always taken the right steps. But I think the first, one of the most important steps was when I turned pro after the US Open Juniors. I had gone to a satellite in 91 in Israel during the Gulf War. So trying to get some easy points. You know, we traveled to areas, lost first round in singles, first round in doubles, thought stuff, what the heck am I doing out here? I can't even win at the lowest levels. That's when I had a good talk with my coach, my team. Wanted to come back. Futures and satellites back there were four weeks event. Didn't come back. Didn't lose a match the next three weeks. And that gave me the confidence to keep on going. Come on, man. <laughs> That's cool. Now, you got to tell the story. When did you defect? <laughs> it's, or you don't call it a defection? No, I don't call it a defection because the fact that I've always had dual nationality through my mom. So I've always had a British and Canadian passport. So explain that. So my mom was born in the, in the UK, lived in the UK, so has always had English and Canadian passport. Having a parent that's born in England and having my father who's Canadian, I'd always had the dual nationality. So it was, it was a decision for my tennis as well as my, my life and my future to go represent the country. Well, how old were you when you, when you, got, when you made that move? It, officially it was 1995, but it was already about 
17, 18, I'd, I made the decision. And you did it because you wanted the Federation behind you. Well, I think it was a combination of a lot of other things. There was more opportunities. Um, there was as a as a as a pro player. As a pro player, exactly. And, and the other thing is as well, it's not like Tennis Canada where it is now. I mean, their investment right now is actually more than the LTA, and it's four times the amount of everybody. You know, if we look at this time, Tennis Canada was nowhere what it was like now. Tennis Canada wasn't when you were there. Wasn't an option. No, it wasn't an option, and, and I was. And the LTA of, was the. They're the big. I mean, they're basically. Yeah, but I was not given any financial incentive or anything to go. It was just a personal choice for myself. So everybody thinks, oh, it was a financial thing, or they're going to help support or fund you. There was nothing given to me. Plus, I paid back all my money Tennis Canada had given to me before I'd left. So most people don't actually understand that in that whole situation. Interesting. What was it like doing that? Well, I, I think... Did you ever be like, oh, man, people are going to hate me? No, I never really thought of it like that in choice. And it was interesting because when I made that decision, nobody really talked about tennis, knew anything about tennis, until all of a sudden I, I basically decided to represent the United Kingdom. So it's quite ironic. And now if we talk about tennis, I mean, it's great to see Canadian tennis doing so well, as well as British tennis. So it gives, it, it's, it's nice to see, see both countries doing so well. When does Tony Picard come into your story? Um, he comes in after the U.S. Open, uh, 97. Um, well, hold on a second. So you had, you know, you had 97 and 98. Yep. Were your two best years on tour. Yep. Um, what, 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 what was the impetus for your playing your best tennis? Were you just in that age where you just, everything came together? Was it Tony Picard? No, I don't think it's one coach. I think it's the volume of work over a decade. Any overnight success is 10 years. 1997, though, you, this was Tony Picard was Stefan Edberg's coach. Yep. And he, you hired him. Yeah, I did. So what I, I was working with Brian Teacher in California, so I was uh, in the sun in this, in this wonderful, wonderful place. And we put in a really hard off-season after working, starting working with him in 96. And I think that off-season, all the work, I'd played San Jose, I'd beat... I'd beaten Agassi, Chang, I was up a set on Pete in the finals and I hurt my wrist and I was out for two months. So then after that I had a good run at Wimbledon, getting to the quarters, then I had the run to the US Open, finals, the finals. So, US Open. so hang on a second, so, so you, got to the, you got to the finals, the US Open, Brian Teacher, then you yeah. fired him. Well, we, our contract was over. So we didn't, there was no firing of that, so the, our arrangement was over. I felt that I needed more tactical awareness in my game. So I think Brian did a lot of great work. We worked well together. I think, you know, we had a partnership that worked for the time, but I wanted to take that next step up. I, would, I, I didn't want to be in the finals of a slam. I wanted to try to win a slam. And I wanted someone with the experience of coaching a player to winning a slam. And I was a serve and volley style but what of what did Brian, of course, 100%, but so wasn't Brian. What did Brian teacher bring to the table? Did, you, did he help you improve? Well, I think what he, what he helped me was the volume of work, bringing in yoga, he's massively into yoga and flexibility. I think that was key. And also relaxation, relaxation, because um, he's very much Zen sort of an individual in person. I'm more of an intense individual in person. So, you know, it's just getting that balance to work out. But, you know, players are so driven because they realize their career is so short and you have to make tough decisions. And that's what I think the very best players do. You um, you had that tremendous success with Brian. Yeah. 
and then you brought in Picard. Yeah. Did you? And I don't. Did you ever really have that success again? Well, I think the unfortunate thing was injuries. Ninety-eight, I was seated fourth at the Wimbledon Championships, and I, I, I twisted and broke my ligaments in my ankles a week and a half before Wimbledon started, and I tried to play on a, a bad foot. So I think that was my my best shot, probably to win a major. Was there, so I was building towards it, but unfortunately, my body didn't cooperate with me. And then Tony and I split because he has a rule: you don't play when you're injured. And I played when I was injured because I was so desperate to play. So that was part of his ruling, and we parted company. And then Sven Grunewald came into the picture. We want, got myself couldn't defend my U.S. Open finals, but then won the Paris Masters series against Sampras in the finals that year for the first British player to ever win so. So there's, the game was still getting better, and I was still improving. But it was. It's not so easy to get back to those slam finals. How would you describe your pro career? I think one thing I always did well in my pro career is I competed every match I played. So I can look back. Did I always do the right things? No. But every match I played, I think I had the respect in the locker room that no matter how well or how badly I was playing, you'd have to win the match. And I think that's probably one of the most important things. Plus, I was renowned for my surf. You know, I wasn't the best from the back of the court um, with ground strokes. I had an attacking sort of game, and I maximized what I had. Best moment on tour? Ooh, probably beating Sampras in the finals of Paris Masters Series because Pete was going for six years, number one in the world. Used to train with him and Jim in Saddlebrook with Pat Echeverry. I'd never beaten Pete at that time. It was nice to shake his hand after beating him in straight, three straight sets after he beat me six times previously. I think that's probably the highlight. Plus, playing Agassi in San Jose, was pretty magical too. So I never lost to Peter Andre in the finals, but I only played them once in the finals. <laughs> um, uh, most disappointing moment on tour? Um, probably injury. When I, when I tore my ligaments in my ankles at Queen's Club going into Wimbledon when I had a chance to win. Because I got explained to me from a doctor, no matter how hard I trained or worked, I lost 2% two per, two flexion in my foot, which is half a step, which you can never physiologically get back. You can make amends for it, but once you get into a surgery, whether it comes with feet or injuries, that's the tennis player's worst nightmare. I would have thought you were going to say being up two sets to love on Pete in 2002 U.S. Open. Well, no, I was, I was one set all. I was up two sets to one. Oh. I lost in five. But then, then he hit a forehand up the line, which I would have loved to see Hawkeye with that call. But the irony of that match was I was just saying in the locker room what everybody thought. But the great champions show us why they're great. And Pete, Pete finished on a high he deserved by winning the title that year in 2002. What Greg's alluding to is he said that he thought Pete was a little slow and and, uh... Well, no, everybody in the locker room is staying a step, a half a step to a step slow. He had, had a terrible run that summer, um, was losing all over the place, wasn't having much confidence, and he had a rough draw. He had Tommy Haas, Andy Ruddock after me, and I felt I should have won that match because I didn't, nearly had set points in every set. And I just was a little fired up and gave my honest opinion. Well, you also got, you got stymied by a rain delay. Yeah, but that's, that's here nor there. That's, that, that's life. Rain delays happen in tennis. And, you know, that's why... You, you had the momentum is what I'm trying to... Yeah, I know, but the momentum doesn't matter. It doesn't go on the scoreboard. It only says Pete Sanford's champion 2002. Said like a real Englishman, not worrying about rain delays as excuses. <laughs> <laughs> well, it hurts you or it saves you sometimes. But now with modern, modern stadiums and roofs at the U.S. Open and at Wimbledon and places like that, the big names don't have to worry about it so much. What was it like being sort of you know, shoulder to shoulder with Tim Henman throughout you guys' sort of moment, you know, really as the, as the, 
you know, the hope of a, the hopes of a nation, right? What was it like being with him? Well, I think it was fine. We, we have a lot of similarities. We're a year apart, so I'm born in 73. He's born in 74 on the same day, September 6th. My wife's name's Lucy. His wife's name's Lucy. We nearly got married on the same dates. We both like serving volley. I'm a lefty, he's a righty. We're a little bit different personalities, each one of us, but I think it's good for the game because sport, whether you're talking about countries or rivalries, it's better to have two players going at it. So it pushes the other player to want to do better and it drives the other one there. So, you know, competition is, is so, so important, but we had the same goals. Was that how it was? Did people, did the people of, 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 of England? Great Britain. Great Britain <laughs> pick sides? Or did people consider you sort of an imposter? No, I don't no. think they did. I think I was I was well liked. I think I'm well respected. I yeah. still do a lot of work in TV. That's clear. That's yeah. not what I'm really. No, no. I know what you're trying. Yeah. To, I know what you're trying to say. But at the end of the day, the newspapers at times could be a little bit tougher on me because I wasn't born and bred. So Tim probably had the easier ride in that respect, and that's that's only normal. I would have to have more success to get get the easier ride, and that's the way life works. But then. You know, it was a little unfair on Tim because he was a guy who maximized his career. Andy Murray came along and then the papers killed him because they realized he couldn't win Wimbledon and then Andy went on to. So it's, it's a little bit the game you get involved, but I think we've both been well-respected and well-liked during our careers and even after our careers. Well, listen, man, you got to four in the world. That's a great career. Yeah. I hope you're proud of your career. Yeah, no, man. no, it's a, it's a great career, but the funny thing is what drives players is I had a chance to be one in Miami um, the week that Rios got to one. So that was my chance to get the one in the world. I got the finals here in Indian Wells, and then it was quarter after myself or Rios for number one, whoever won the tournament. And that was the year Rios won back to back to get to number one. Who'd you lose to in Miami? I lost to Inquist, who I beat the week before in the fourth round. So I was, I was, three, matches, I was three matches away. So at least I, I can say in my career, I never got there, but I had a shot. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. That we do not do a deep dive. I just say yep. something. You answer. And you say what comes into your mind. Are one you ready? word or one word or two. Anything. Hey man, you can do whatever you want. Okay. Favorite tournament? Whew. Um I would say Wimbledon. Most disliked tournament. Um anywhere I lost first round on clay. Favorite court. Oh, that's a tough one. So many great courts. Can I do it by by events? Come on, man. Just what's the... Center center court, Wimbledon. What else? Give me another one. Uh, Indian Wells, center court. U.S. Open, center court. Those are probably the three. Great players like the great big courts. Um, Least like court. Least like Hamburg in spitting rain on the outside court, freezing cold. Now it's nice because it's warm, but that was just, just nasty playing that event. Big entourage or lean and mean? Lean and mean. Why? Too many, too many chefs uh, wreck the, the, the stew or the broth. Too many I, cooks in the soup. Exactly. But, you know, we talk about that, and this brings me up to kind of an interesting story with Dominic Team this year. You know, he brought Thomas Mooster into the team midway through the Australian. He decided, okay, too many cooks there. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks in the kitchen and what ended up happening was he made all the way to the finals, beat Nadal, had a shot and lost to Djokovic in five. And that's what I think great champions do. They know when they need to cut, when they need more, when they need less. Coaching from the player box. Happens all the time. On-court coaching. Why not? Favorite player growing up? Yeah, I'm John McEnroe. Favorite forehand? Um, that's a tough one, actually. 
Depends. Favorite forehand, there's so many in the list that you could go through. I quite like watching Gonzo, just because it was sheer crazy Fern power. Fernando Gonzalez, yeah. a, lot of, uh, a lot of our guests say that. Favorite backhand? Well, it depends if you're going one or two-handed. So if I, if I was going one-handed, I'd probably go Stan the Man, just because of sheer power he can get on it. Two-handed, I'd have to say Djokovic. Volleys? McEnroe. Serves? Um, Serve. I would say Sampras, I'd have to say, is the greatest serve that ever existed. If I couldn't take my own, I quite like mine. Greg likes his own, but uh, shout out to Pete, who uh, tormented and tortured Greg from time to time. Well, well who didn't he torture? Yeah, who <laughs> didn't question. he? The worst. The only time he didn't torture you was on the club. The best the, at being the, the, only, the only most time, torture chamber. The only time he didn't torture you was uh, if it was on clay. Where do you keep your trophies? Oh, all over the place. I don't even have that many of them. I have a few in my sitting room, maybe two or three, and the rest I don't even know where half of them are. <laughs> Come on, man. You don't know where your trophies are? I don't, actually. I have, I, have, I have the one in Paris Master Series in my sitting room. I have the BBC Sports Personality, and then my, my ATP Finals, the two ATP end-of-season finals I ended up getting to. But then a few of them, some are in storage, okay. and some are at my parents'. Did you save your credentials throughout your career? I didn't save my credentials. I have a few passes. My kids save theirs whenever they come to the events these days. How many rackets do you keep in your house? Ooh, I don't have that many left. Only special rackets for special memories. So maybe I'll have about 10, 10 left, and then the ones I'm playing with at the moment. What racket did you keep that was special, for example? I have a few from the US Open Finals. I have a few from when I won the um, Grand Slam Cup, because I was the last man to win that one. And then I have um, one of the Dunlops I won with my last event in Newport, Rhode Island. Did you make a bad mistake and switch from Wilson to Donne in the middle of your career? Do I remember that? I made a switch. I don't think it was a bad switch because um, if I look at my results in 99, I, ha I had some pretty good results there. It wasn't a racket. It was more the feet. <laughs> no, you switched after 97, 98 to Donne. Yeah, Donne Dunlop. They're the same company. So they were owned by Sports Soccer. And I still won the Grand Slam Cup with it and Vienna. So it couldn't, have, it couldn't have been a bad switch. Greg was game playing in the racket. No, and it's, 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 it's the Indian, not the arrow, as they like to say. Let's move into our fifth and final set. We call this the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just one swing of the racket without any significant aggravation, what would it be? <laughs> Well, I think you'd have aggravation because there's somebody who's going to complain about it to start off with. But I think I want to speed up the game of tennis. I want to make sure that we can get it between an hour, an hour and a half. The tournament, not the tournaments, but the matches, I should say. Because, you know, the viewer watching the sport, we need the attention and people to get in a new fan. So we need a new format that's quicker, maybe with the sit down as well and getting the towel, which I did too often, and just speeding up each match. Lose best of five. Well, I don't know. I, I quite like the tiebreaker in the fifth set. You know, I think that works quite well. And that's kind of always been the history of the game. But that's something that needs to be visited. But I think I'd keep that at the slams. But I'd try this formulation at the 250s or 500 and see how the fans like that and see what the viewing numbers are and whether people like to speak. Because they're trying those things at the next generation, next gen finals. You know, but it, let's see if we can even make it quicker because the players sometimes struggle with that sort of format. Greg Ruzedski, make it quicker. Yeah, make it quicker for the audience because people's attention span aren't what they used to be. Because if you look at the younger generation, most of our fan these days 
is an older generation. We need to bring young people into our sport who love watching it. And I think that's the key to success for the future. My man, I'm looking at your credential. It says Ambergate Productions. It makes me think that you're thinking like some kind of a TV producer. <laughs> uh, well, that should say Amazon on it, to be quite honest. I got the, the, the wrong tag on it, but it gets me everywhere. But you, you, the way you're talking, it's like you know the you're kind of doing the metrics on. You sound like your dad a little bit, right? You're doing the metrics on people watching. Well, you have to do the metrics of people watching. How does any sport or any business or anything grow? You have to know what the fan wants as well. Your traditional fan you have there, and you're going to keep them. The slams don't have a problem getting viewership and audience and and revenue and funds in. But the lesser events, not such as these master series here in Indian Wells, the lesser events are struggling. Hey, man. Um, can't thank you enough. Uh, this was a, a pleasure, and it's good to see you again after, you know, stringing your rackets uh, 25 years ago. God almighty, am I really that old? <laughs> you got old, man. Time flies when you're... You're having fun. Yeah. Um, Greg Ruzedski, pleasure was mine, and you are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Greg Ruzedski. Huge thank you to the La Quinta Tennis Villa. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. Thank you to our patron, David Twig. It was great to chat with you last week. If you've been thinking about becoming a patron of the show, now is the time. We've posted some new members-only premium content. Please head on over to Patreon.com slash Tennis to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash tennis. We really appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Our email is underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. And Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.